Well, good morning. I want to welcome everyone here to Gospel of Grace. I've got a lot of thank yous to give. I want to thank this congregation for being so kind and generous. I'm a feel like a big dope. I just fell off my back steps, and you guys have been so kind and gracious to give cards, and not just this congregation, but also people that are throughout the United States. I want to thank you. Um, I did have kind of a catastrophic accident. For those of you that may be listening that don't know, I had uh, tried to shut off a car alarm, and I slipped on ice, and I got my I went down steps, and my right leg was caught behind me, and so it tore my quadricep from my, my kneecap, and I found out you need that. <laughs> you need that quadricep. So anyway, that's what happened. I want to thank Bob, especially for filling in and doing such a great job and having to do so many sermons. It's wonderful having that quality of a theologian to rely upon. So thank you, Bob, for all of the hard work. But we got to give Bob a rest too. So I will get back to Matthew today. And today we are in Matthew seven thirteen through 14. And as we approach here, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to realize that there are four contrasts that Jesus is going to be giving us at the end here that really serve as warnings. And so each of these four contrasts, there are only two possibilities. So for example, today we're going to be covering Matthew seven thirteen through 14, where we see that there are only two ways. You're either on the way to salvation or the way to destruction. That's it. There's only two. Next section we are in, Matthew seven fifteen through 20, there's only two trees. Either you're a tree that's bearing fruit because you belong to Christ by faith, or you're going to bear no fruit and you're going to be heading for destruction. The third contrast, we come to verses 21 through 23, there's only two claims. And interestingly, the first claim in this section is by the unregenerate, the unbelievers who say, in their claim, hey, Lord, didn't we do this in your name and that in your name? Jesus, the Lord, will give a counterclaim saying, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The fourth contrast that we'll come to is verses 24 through 27, where there's only two builders. The one builder builds on the rock, that is messianic salvation. Every other builder that builds on anything else is heading for destruction. Now, in each of these contrasts, each of them is designed to challenge the audience to come to faith in Christ immediately, meaning right now for salvation in the future eschatological age. That's the design of it. Now, today in verses 13 through 14, we're going to be confronted with the fact that there are only two ultimate destinies for every single person. It's either heaven or it's hell. And we know this because Jesus himself tells us if, in fact, someone disagrees with the binary paths that the Bible teaches, then they are not disagreeing with Eric Dauma or any other Bible teacher or pastor. Ultimately, they're disagreeing with Jesus himself, the Holy One of Israel. Now, today I'm going to be answering three questions. Number one, what is the narrow way and how do I enter it? Number two, what really is the greatest threat facing humanity? Is it global warming? Is it living in some evil capitalist society, as so many claim today? Or is it being faced with the wrath of God? Number three, how soon could I be facing the wrath of God? That's a question that I want all unbelievers to consider here this morning. Okay, now, let's begin before I get to the Matthew text. I want to discuss how this idea of there being only two ways, one for salvation and one for judgment, is found in the Old Testament as well. So that we see Jesus is not teaching some Johnny-come-lately brand-new idea, but he's teaching what the Bible has always taught. So let's begin in Psalm 1-6. Here the psalmist said, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I want to pull up my pointer here and point out a few things. First of all, notice it says the Lord knows. The term knows there, yadah, is a term that can certainly mean cognitive knowledge, and it often does, but it also can mean an intimate relational knowledge. And I say that because I think that it's the latter, the intimate relational knowledge that it's being used here. I think about Adam in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Remember there it says that Adam knew his wife and she bore a son. That's the same verb here, yeah, that. Now, 
when it says that Adam knew his wife, did that mean cognitively he could pick her out in a lineup? That one's my wife. No, I think it meant uh, intimate relational knowledge that he had with her. Obviously, they bore a child. In the same way, Yahweh intimately knows the way of the righteous. The term way there, Derek, if your name is Derek, it means road in Hebrew. He knows the road of the righteous. Why? Because he placed them on that road. He's the one who chose them. He's the one who regenerated them. He's the one who gave them saving faith. And so he intimately is acquainted with it. In the implication, he's going to guard that. He's going to protect that. And he's going to bring them to glory. But notice the contrast, the way of the wicked, they're going to perish. There's only two ways. The way of the righteous, their implication, they have salvation. The way of the wicked, they're going to perish. Now, it's not just in the writings. It's in the in the. In the prophets as well. In fact, here's just one example, Jeremiah 21, 8. Notice Jeremiah says, you shall say to this people, thus says the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Again, over and over in the Bible, there's only two ways. So as Jesus is going to be teaching us today in Matthew chapter 7, that there are only two ways, the way of life and the way of death, he's not teaching something new. What is new is who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh, confronting all of humanity with the fact that there are only two destinies. It's either life or it's death, and life is only in him. That's what's new. And so remember, as we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, we're coming to the last sections of it. Remember, it is God once again meeting his people on the mountain. What do I mean by that? Remember back in the Old Testament... God met Israel where? Where did he meet them? On a mountain, Mount Sinai. Now under the new covenant, Jesus, who is God in the flesh, meets the people on the mountain. And he ends that revelation by saying and proclaiming that salvation is only found in him. And so that's where we pick it up today. Matthew seven thirteen through 14, he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, And the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Dear ones, I want you to notice here in the beginning of this first clause in verse 13, where Jesus commands everyone to enter through the narrow gate. The term enter there is an imperative of ice erkamai, meaning it is a command. It is a command to enter the narrow gate, not a helpful hint. It is not a suggestion. It is a command. It reminds me of the command that Jesus gives in Mark 1.15, where he commands all people for all time to repent and to believe the gospel. And you'll often hear me say that that is not a hint or a suggestion either. That is a command. Today in this passage, Jesus is commanding all people for all time to enter into the narrow gate. It's not a suggestion. Now, notice here the narrow gate. The term narrow there, stenos, denotes the idea of being a restrictive space, which is contrasted with the wide gate that is seen as spacious, more popular, with ample room for all the baggage that people are traveling with. Now, today I'm going to begin by focusing on the narrow gate, and then I will come to the wide gate. But the first thing we have to wrestle with today I think in this passage, is exactly what kind of imagery is Jesus using. And the reason I say that is some scholars have claimed that Jesus really is talking about people entering the road that either leads to life or death, and at the end of the road, you come to the gate, the gate that leads to either eternal life or eternal death. In fact, in some sense, think about in the American vernacular, that's how people conceive of it. You come to the end of your life and you're before the pearly gates. And so some scholars think that that's perhaps what Jesus is driving at. But others, I think, rightly claim, no, you enter a gate first, either of life or death, and then you travel the road to your eternal destiny. And I want you to see that that is exactly the order that Jesus in entails notice here in fact i'll point it out in the passage itself notice first of all the narrow gate does everyone see that well notice the road the term way here hodos can be rendered road which is narrow 
comes after the gate. So you enter the gate, then you go down the road. Notice regarding the wide gate. You come to that before you come to what? Notice on the screen. Before you come to the broad or the wide way or road. So it's the gate first, then the road. By Jesus accentuating that fact, he is accentuating the fact that you enter into salvation now. It's now that you come to messianic salvation that will set up your eternal destiny. But likewise, it is also true that the default position of every human being is now on the wide path. The decision is now. It's not at the end of your life. It's not at the end of history. For every human being, it's now. Today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. If you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, today is the day. That's what Jesus is accentuating in this passage. Now, I want you to see that in verse 14, we have Jesus further elaborating on the narrow gate. Notice he says the gate is small. Now, the term small there is stenos in the box, and that is synonymous with the adjective stenos up where you see it says narrow. So both terms in the box are the same Greek term stenos. Now, why am I mentioning that? Because you would expect the narrow here to be identical to the narrow here. It is not. While this is stenos and that is stenos, the term narrow here for the road, the term there is phlebo. Phlebo. Now, why is phlebo important? Because it is the verbal form of the noun philipsis, which means tribulation. So literally what Jesus is saying is, he says, for the gate is small and the road is tribulation-inducing. It is the difficult road. Why? Because the moment you enter into the narrow gate, you are not only grafted into the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but you are grafted into the persecutions as well. It is the difficult road because you will suffer persecution as you belong to Jesus Christ. That's the point. But the good news is, notice what it leads to. It leads to life. And the implication here is, of course, eternal life. Now, one of the questions is, how many are going to find this narrow gate that leads to eternal life, the one that's laced with this temporary difficulty? Well, notice it says only a few find it. Only a few. When I was a brand new Christian, I remember thinking how my mind changed about the Bible because before I knew the Bible, I had this conception as a kid that the vast majority of people would enter into heaven. And it was only the minority, you know, the people like Adolf Hitler and Stalin and Mao and people that work at the DMV. Just kidding, just kidding. Pastors have to have fun too, just joking. But it was only the, the small amount of people that entered into hell. That's not what Jesus is teaching. He is saying that it's the minority report. That the vast majority in every generation are those who are on the wide path, the popular path, the path that seems right to a man in the flesh, but at the end leads to destruction. Now, I want you to think about that. A couple of implications for us as believers regarding that fact. First of all, we as believers are always going to be in the minority. Some years ago, I was talking politics with Adam Olin, and he astutely told me, he said, Eric, being the remnant is not a winning political strategy. Bob often tells me no one he ever votes for gets elected. And look at the shape our country is in. Listen to Bob. If you vote the way Bob does, we'd be in a lot better shape. But the fact of the matter is we're the remnant. Another fact I want you to think about, if in fact narrow is the gate that leads to life, wide is the gate that leads to eternal, or excuse me, to eternal damnation, and many enter in through it, what does that say to the post-millennialists who claim that one day you're going to have a Christianized planet and Jesus Christ simply comes to take the rule? What it says is that's a lie. Throughout all of history, until the Lord Jesus Christ breaks through the clouds, you're the remnant if you trust in Jesus Christ. That's what the scriptures are telling us today. Now, let's talk about the wide path. Notice the wide path, again, is entered into now, and by implication, every human being is on the wide path at birth. 
It is the default position for every human being. How do you get on the wide path you're born? How do you get onto the narrow path you're born again? That's the idea. Now, notice here on the wide path, it is indeed wide and it is indeed broad. And both terms in the Greek indicate the idea that this is a spacious route. There's ample room. It is the preferred route of the vast majority of people and there's ample room for their baggage as they're traveling down. It is the obvious route. It is the religious route. It is the spirituality route. But at the end of it, where does it lead? Destruction. Destruction. The term for destruction there, apoleia, in context with the New Testament means an eternal destruction. I say that because some Christians belong to what's called the annihilationist camp where they believe that one day people will cease to exist. And that's what destruction means. That is not what this destruction means. It has to do with an eternal punishment. Think of it this way. If you say to me, hey, Eric, my car was destroyed. I don't get the idea that your car ceased to exist. I just think of it as all mangled and twisted up and undrivable. But it still exists in the same way. The destruction that's being talked about here is an eternal punishment. That's why Jesus will later say in Matthew 25, 41, he will warn people of the eternal fire. That's why later he's going to say in Matthew 25, 46, that there's an eternal punishment. Eternal fire, eternal punishment is synonymous with the destruction. So, dear ones, Jesus is clearly laying out there's only two paths, the way of life and the way of death. That's it. That's what he's laying out. Now, when I was in seminary, in fact, Bob and I were talking about that this morning in his great Sunday school class that he did. I was in seminary. I had just left my airline job. I was there for seven years, and I was all excited to learn the great doctrines of the faith in seminary because my wife and I had the opportunity to study our four-year degree program at Northwestern College. It was called the Bible College at the time where we were able to dig into the scriptures and we had to write papers and we were doing exegesis. Well, I was so excited to be doing that with the original languages when I went to seminary. So I show up on seminary, I think this is around 2005, and guess who Provost Eliason, the provost of Bethel Seminary, chose to do the orientation lecture? Doug Paget of the Emerging Church. And I remember one of the first lines out of Doug Paget's mouth was, we have to stop binary reductionism now. So you can't have either or. And this is coming from the man who's invited by the seminary to speak. You can't have either or. Well, right away I'm thinking, I'm, I'm a little slow. I'm an airline pilot. This is an all new binary reductionism. Binary is either or. We can't reduce it to either or. Right away I think about heaven or hell. Right away I think about the sheep or the goats. Brothers and sisters, the Bible's either or. And so Doug Paget and those who were lined with him are not disagreeing with some right-wing evangelical or Eric Dalma. They're in disagreement with Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of Israel. Doug Paget is an enemy of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, the one who walked on water, the one who calmed the sea, demonstrating he was Yahweh. As it says in Job, only God is the one who tramples down the waves of the sea. The one who cast out the demons, who let the lame leap like a deer, who healed the deaf and enabled the mute to speak, who gave sight to the blind, who raised the dead, who predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and then pulled it off. The only man in history who ascended in glory, fulfilling Psalm 110.1, who's coming again to judge the living and the dead, He's at odds with him. Who are you going to go with? Are you going to go with Doug Paget, Or are you going to go with Jesus Christ? As for me and my house, we're going with Christ. Don't be fooled today if you belong to some left-wing church or some different religion or just consider yourself spiritual and you don't believe that there's only two paths. You are disagreeing not with Eric Dalma, but Jesus, the Holy One of Israel. That's where your disagreement is with. Now, dear ones, what is the narrow path? The narrow path is found through faith alone 
in Jesus Christ alone. That's what we're going to find out today. You and I are going to find out that every human being by default is on the path to destruction. And it's that path that they are on right at birth. And so one must be, again, born again to enter into the narrow gate through faith alone. That's what we're going to be learning today. And so let me turn to some applications with you. I have three of them. Number one, we must know that the narrow path to heaven is through faith alone in Christ alone. That's how you enter the narrow gate. By the way, someone might bring up repentance. Repentance is implied in faith alone. If you're turning, which is what repentance is from unbelief, you're turning to faith. You're turning from idolatry. You're turning to God in his terms, which is faith alone. So just as grace and mercy go hand in hand, faith and repentance go hand in hand. How can you be given God's grace, unmerited favor, if you're also not given his mercy? How can you have saving faith if you haven't repented? And how can you repent if you don't repent to faith? They go hand in hand. And that's why we can summarize it's faith alone. It's a summary. Faith alone and Christ alone. Number two, we must know that the narrow path is traveled in agony. It's not an easy path. You belong to Christ. You're grafted in to the persecutions of Israel. Number three, every person must be convinced that the wrath of God is the greatest threat they face. It's not anything else. That's it. What's the greatest threat you face? The wrath of God. For those of my brothers and sisters here who have fled to Christ, you no longer face that. That issue has been resolved. But for those on the wide path, that's the greatest threat. Now, dear ones, I want to begin by mentioning that all false religions and personal systems of spirituality will place a person on the wide path. And what I mean by that is it doesn't get you off the wide path. You're born into the wide path, and if you're spiritual or you have some false religion, it will never get you off the wide path because all human systems of religion and spirituality, all they have to offer are human works that you have to give your human works before God to have forgiveness of sins and to have imputed righteousness. What's the problem with relying upon human works? Well, the Bible very clearly says they're deficient. In fact, in Isaiah 64, 6, the prophet Isaiah said, God looks at our righteous deeds, not our bad deeds, even our righteous deeds as nothing more than filthy rags. That's all they are. Why? Because they are coming in the from the unregenerate, from people who are cosmic rebels against God. Think about it. Let's say you're a rebel against some king. You try to overthrow his throne. But on one particular day, you help an old lady cross the street. Do you think the king will say, well, as long as you did that, I don't care about this rebellion against me and my throne. No, he's going to judge you. You will be sentenced. And none of our righteous deeds in the unregenerate state are attractive to God. They cannot bring atonement and they cannot give us righteousness. Now, atonement and righteousness are what I like to refer to as the great transaction. Every human being who's on the wide path to destruction desperately needs something that they don't have, the righteousness of God, and they have to get rid of something that they can't have, namely their sin debt. Jesus Christ is the only way that we can get that great transaction. First of all, with atonement. Atonement is where we have our forgiveness of sins, and there's two elements behind it. The first element is called expiation, where there's a removal of our sins. As David said, as far away as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our sins from us. The sins are removed from the people, so they're no longer counted against us. That's expiation. It's man-centered. There's another element to atonement, which is called propitiation. That's God-centered, and that's where payment has been paid in full. So God is appeased, and he's no longer angry, and his wrath is no longer bent towards the sinner. Jesus Christ provides both. He removes our sins, and he appeases God through his substitutionary death. But Jesus doesn't just get us rid of something that we can't have, our sin debt, but he also gives us something we do need, namely righteousness. Our sins are removed and we're forever considered righteous because we are clothed in his. That's what every person needs to be on the narrow path of salvation. And what I want you to see is that in the Old Testament, we have the same plan. It's by faith alone 
that people are justified and get the great transaction. In other words, it's not in the Old Testament that they had plan A, salvation by works. Then all of a sudden you come to the New Testament, well, let's go to plan B, let's go to this grace by faith thing. It's always been by faith. Let's look at Abraham. Remember, Abraham was brought outside by the Lord, and he was asked to believe the promises. The Lord has him look at the skies. Count the stars. It says, so shall your seed be. And notice Genesis 15, 6. It says, then he, that's Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, notice the term believed. Who believed? Abraham. The term believed there, ha-amin, can be rendered trust. Belief, they're both the same. What I want you to see here is who was his trust in? Was Abraham trusting himself? Was Abraham's trust in his good works? Was Abraham's trust in the universe or spirituality or some religious leader? No, it was in, and the prepositions there in the Hebrew, bah, it's in Yahweh. The covenant name for God, Yahweh, I am. It's in his name. It's in his person. It's in his work. It's in his promises. And what's the result of trusting in Yahweh? The great transaction. Notice Yahweh reckoned it to him as righteousness. The term reckon there, in the Greek, it's actually legitimai. In Hebrew, it's hashav. But it means the same thing. It is an accounting term. And the idea is, as you and I were on the broad path of destruction... When it came to righteousness, we had an empty ledger. When it came to our sin debt, well, that was full. But when it came to righteousness, we had none of our own to offer. And so by trusting in Yahweh, his person, his work, the righteousness of God was credited to Abraham's account. Abraham didn't just get better over time. He had nothing to offer. What did he have to offer? Sin and rebellion. That's all he came with but it was credited to his ledger a righteousness that he would have forevermore so that he has right standing with God. Now, you might say, well, yeah, Abraham believed in the Lord, but who are we to believe in? Well, you know what? When we trust in Jesus, he is Yahweh. He is the second person of the Trinity. When Abraham trusted in Yahweh, he was trusting in the second person of the Trinity as well. Didn't Jesus say in John eight fifty eight before Abraham was, I am well, Abraham believed in the great I am. Didn't Jesus say in John eight fifty six that Abraham looked ahead and saw his day and rejoiced? He did. So what I want you to conceive of is when you look at biblical salvation, Abraham may be looking forward to the cross, and you and I are looking back to the cross, but it's one Savior, it's one act of salvation, and it's one faith. And it's always going to be that way. It's the only way anyone can be made right with God, faith alone. Now, we see that not just in the law. We see it in the prophets. Remember the prophet Habakkuk. He wrote around 600 B.C. And remember, Habakkuk had two big complaints. First complaint, Lord, I'm amongst the Israelites and the people of Judah, and they are immoral. What are you going to do with your people? The Lord's reply, I'm sending the Babylonians. Well, they're even worse. Second complaint, they're even worse, Habakkuk says. And I'm paraphrasing mightily, but he says, and Lord, didn't you make a promise to make this nation great, to be their covenant God? What about those promises? And so what God does, he reminds them of the messianic promises. And so notice here in Habakkuk 2.4, it says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. Let's stop there. What's the problem with the proud one? Well, the proud one relies upon their works. The proud one relies upon their craftiness, but they don't trust in Yahweh. Notice the contrast, but the righteous will live by his faith. Habakkuk kept to keep trusting the promises that one day messianic salvation would come, and it didn't come for another 600 years. You and I have been living basically 2,000 years between the first coming and expecting the second coming. But I have to say that as you and I reflect on Habakkuk, we're really in the same position. That this salvation, it may tarry, 
but it will ultimately come. And you and I, therefore, live by what? By faith. Not a blind leap of faith where we have no evidence, as Soren Kierkegaard argued. It's not true. We have plenty of evidence. It's found in the Scriptures. Predictive prophecies. That's where we have our evidence. So you and I have to live by faith. Salvation's always been by faith alone. That's how you enter into the narrow way. Finally, I want to show you the Apostle Paul. Let's come to the New Covenant. Galatians 3, 7, Paul says, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The phrase sons of Abraham here doesn't refer to ethnic descendants of Abraham, but rather those who inherit the kingdom. How do you inherit the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? It's by faith alone. It is by faith alone. The narrow path today that Jesus spoke about can never be found by human spirituality, human religion, human works. It's by faith alone. Now, if we know it's by faith alone, in whom should we have our faith and trust? Well, as we find out very clearly, it's Jesus alone. In fact, Jesus himself says so. Remember here in John 14, 6, Jesus is answering the question that Thomas the disciple asked. Thomas, doubting Thomas, asked, Lord, how do we know where you're going and how do we know the way? How do we know? Well, Jesus answered him. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Again, the term way there is road. Jesus is the narrow road. He's the narrow way. I remember some years ago, and by the way, I don't know why I was watching this, but I do remember seeing it. I was watching Oprah Winfrey. Don't think less of me. I was watching Oprah Winfrey. Sounds kind of feminine, doesn't it? But Oprah Winfrey had a bunch of spiritual people on, and I remember her saying that there couldn't possibly be just one way to salvation. And a lot of people clapped in the audience. They're all, yes, only one. There can't be one way. There's multiple paths to heaven. Well, there was one bold woman who stood up, and she said, that's not right. And she cited boldly John fourteen six, where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. God bless that woman for confessing. But what you have to know is that the common opinion of those on the wide path is that there's many ways. Jesus is giving an exclusive claim. He's giving a claim that he alone is the way. What everyone, every human being has to wrestle with is the evidence, does the evidence suggest that he's worthy of that claim? And when you look at the evidence from the scriptures, you will find, as I did as a young man, that indeed he is. Now, it's not just Jesus who claims this. We see it from the apostles. Here's Peter, Acts 4.12. He says, there's no salvation, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Today, if you are on the broad path, you're, you have a different religion, you're a Hindu, you're a Buddhist, you're an atheist, you're into New Age spirituality, whatever it may be, if you have any other arrangement to find the narrow path, I have to say in all love, you're on a fool's errand. And this fool's errand is a sad one because you're only fooling yourself. You're only going to hurt yourself in the, in the long run. Today is the day to come to faith alone and Jesus Christ alone and enter the narrow path. All right, now, we learn today that the narrow path is not only the only way to salvation, but it's also going to be the difficult one. Remember I showed you in Matthew seven fourteen that it is the road that is laced with affliction and tribulation. And we all have to know that, that that was promised by Jesus Christ all over the place. In fact, let me show you another place where this is promised. Luke 13, verses 22 through 24. It says, And he, that's Jesus, was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Uh, there's a lot in this passage. Let me focus on what you see highlighted in blue. In verse 24, notice the command, Strive. It is another command by the Lord Jesus. What's very interesting is that verb comes from agonizomai. It's a deponent verb that you can hear the root of it, 
of agony in the English. And so this is a command. We are to agonizingly enter in through the narrow door. What Jesus means by that is you enter into the narrow door, it is the way of agony and difficulty. Why? Because the moment you trust in Jesus Christ, as Bob said many years ago, you are not just grafted into the promises, you're grafted into the persecution. But what you and I have to be ultimately aware of is that this narrow road that's difficult now is leading to glory. And so I want you to think of this great contrast. For those that are on the wide path that are going to destruction, the wide path is laced with temporary glory, but it's going to lead in eternal agony. You who enter the narrow gate through faith alone and Christ alone are going to go through temporary agony, but you're going to have eternal glory. That's why it's worth it. That's why you enter the narrow gate. That's why you come to Christ alone, by faith alone. That's why you seek his imputed righteousness. That's why you seek his atonement, and you flee from your works, which are nothing more than filthy rags. Because at the end of the day, it's going to bring you to glory. Now, I want to show you a couple more passages that I think we have to consider regarding this idea of tribulation here and now. I remember some years ago, I was doing a critical issues commentary with Bob, and Bob shared some wisdom with me, and it stuck with me in my mind, and it often comes to me as I deal with people in ministry. He said, you know, Eric, all my years as a pastor, inevitably you'll have someone who has troubles in their life, and because of their troubles, they assume that their doctrine of faith alone and Christ alone has been poorly placed. They'll have troubles with their children, troubles with their wives, troubles with their jobs, troubles with their health. And they assume, if I was really walking in the will of God, why would I have so many troubles? Do you know why? Because we're promised troubles. That's why. The road to glory is laced with trouble. And so Bob's point is, don't get off the road. Stay put. Stay faithful to faith alone in Christ alone. Let me show you. It's not just Jesus that promised us a rough time on the narrow path through the narrow gate. Notice here, Acts 14, 22. Here the apostle Paul was teaching in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And there's a summary statement. It says that he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Notice it's through many tribulations. The term there, thalipsis, is the noun form of thalibo that Jesus used in Matthew seven fourteen, for the narrow way. It's, and as I mentioned, it's a tribulation-inducing way. That's what Jesus is referring to. Paul is teaching the same thing. Now, let me handle a quick category error. Some Christians deduce from this that we are not going to have a pre-tribulational rapture, and that is a category error. Let me explain why. The tribulations to which Paul refers are referring to events that occur to us in this life during what we call the church age, between the 69th week of Daniel and the 70th week of Daniel. We're living in that gap. And that, those tribulations that we experience are in that gap. But one day, once we enter into the parousia, the technical term for the coming of Christ, the last seven years, there's going to be a reversal in which those who placed you in tribulation are going to be put in tribulation by the Lord. Where do we see that? Well, Paul promises such in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 7. He says, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction. There's the ellipsis. There it is, same term Jesus used. This is the noun form that Jesus used in Matthew seven fourteen. Same one that's being used here. He's going to repay with affliction those who afflict you. In fact, the term afflict there is thalibo, the verb. And to give relief to you who are afflicted. And to us as well, when? When will this happen? When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. When does that happen? In the 70th week of Daniel. Right now, as you live during the church age, the time of the Gentiles, you're going to be going for, through tribulation. But once you are raptured, in the 70th week of Daniel, your tribulations are over. They will be poured upon the unregenerate world. And this is why Jesus could say in Revelation 3.10, because you've kept my word of perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world 
to test those who dwell upon the earth. Not just a promise for the church of Philadelphia, but for all Christians for all time. The Lord has promised you that your tribulation is short-lived. Brothers and sisters, you and I will go through tribulation, but again, our tribulation is temporary because we're heading for eternal glory. So don't, if you run into troubles, don't jettison your, your faith in Jesus Christ. Stay put on the narrow path to salvation. Now, I want to come to my third point. I want to answer the last two questions. What is the greatest threat that every person is facing, and how soon could a person face this great threat? I've become very disturbed that in our nation, many school children are being taught that the greatest threat they face is, quote-unquote, climate change, which really is an equivocation on what they used to claim, which is global warming. In fact, I remember some years ago, Al Gore claimed that school children, well, just children in general, in the Midwest would never see snowstorms again. My son was born in 2009, and do you know that every year of his life, this is 10 years after Gore said it, he's seen snowstorms. Al Gore is a false prophet. So what children are hearing is that there's a new definition of sin that comes from the Marxist left, and sin is carbon emission. And the only atonement possible is to vote for Marxists who will destroy your power grid, raise your inflation, threaten your financial future and food supply, and tyrannically rule over you. That's the only atonement they offer. But what Jesus does is he clarifies what the real threat is. The real threat isn't global warming. For God himself has given a command and a promise to all humans at the Noahic Covenant in Genesis 8.22 that he would sustain the universe and the world. You can look it up. And so you have a choice. You're going to believe God or you're going to believe Gore. It's either God or Gore, one or the other. I'm believing Jesus. Jesus gives us the greatest threat. Matthew 10, 28, he says, Do not fear those who kill the body. That's what man can do, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Notice soul and body is the entire person. That's what God can do. Where is it? It's in the lake of fire. That's the greatest threat that every human being faces. It's not global warming. It's not some inequity here and now. It's not your health concerns. It's not financial concerns. Those, by the way, can be big problems. I'm not poo-pooing them. But the greatest threat every human being faces until they enter the narrow gate by faith alone and Christ alone is the wrath of God. And that's why Paul would say this in Romans 2.25. He says, but because of your. Let's stop there. Who is the your? It's none of my fellow brothers and sisters. It's not one of you who has entered the narrow gate through faith alone in Christ alone. This is exclusive of all unbelievers, but it's every one of them. This is what Paul says to all unbelievers. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Every moment of your life, if you're outside of Christ, if you're on the wide path that leads to destruction, you are building a ledger that's accruing interest of the wrath of God. And one day, when you breathe your last, you'll be held in account. That's the greatest threat that every single human being faces. And so let's be very clear on what happens to every individual when they die. First of all, one day everyone dies. Death is a reality. It's like death and taxes. It's the only realities there, there is, right? The only certainty. How do we know that death is a reality? Well, we see it with our own eyes. But Hebrews 9.27 declares, he says, it's appointed once for a man to die, after that comes judgment. Death in the Bible is not annihilation. It's not ceasing to exist. It is a separation. It's always separation. It's separation of body and soul. Your body goes into the ground and your soul goes somewhere else. Now, for the believer, death is a wonderful thing because your soul will go to be with the Lord in heaven. In fact, Paul himself said in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus himself said on the cross, remember to the thief that was next to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Does paradise sound a little bit better than what we got going on here? And especially in light of what I got going on here, that's how I think about it. I got my kicks there. Well, I think it sounds pretty good, but not so for the unbeliever. 
The unbeliever is going to die, and where are they going to go? They're going to go to a, a temporal place of torment called Hades. Hades isn't simply the grave. There is a temporal place of torment called Hades. And so the torment, the wrath of God, gets poured on them immediately. Not to the extent it will in the lake of fire, but immediately they're suffering. In fact, there's evidence of this, I think, in Luke 16. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Luke 16. Let's start for the sake of time. I know we're getting to the end here. Let's turn to verse 23. Luke 16, 23. And as you're turning there, let me just set the stage. We're just coming right in the middle of the story. But Jesus is giving a story of two men. One is Lazarus. He's a believer and he's a poor man. But because he's a believer, he ends up in Abraham's bosom, which is a euphemism and a, a, just an idiomatic expression of heaven. He's in the New Jerusalem. But what happens to this wealthy man, this rich man who's an unbeliever? Well, he ends up in Hades the moment he dies. Notice verse 23. It says, in Hades, he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. Verse 26, it says, And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Notice it's fixed. Verse 27, and he said, this is the rich man, he says, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. Now listen to why. I'll stop here in verse 28. He says, For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them. Stop there. I'm saying this to fellow believers. Think about this for a moment. Put on your eschatology hat. What happens when you have the white throne judgment where people are sentenced to the lake of fire? Every person's eternal destiny is fixed at that point. In other words, there's not going to be anybody repenting. Every believer is already in the new heavens, the new earth, and new Jerusalem, and the white throne judgment is for all unbelievers. No one will escape that. But notice here, it's describing that there's five brothers who are still alive who have a chance to repent. That's why we know, I think, this is Hades, the intermediate state, and not hell, the eternal state. You see the logic there? Now, what I want you to see is that one day, as bad as Hades is for the unbeliever, they will be sentenced at the white throne judgment, and there's no way of getting out of it. It gets worse. They go from Hades to hell. Hell is the lake of fire. That's what Jesus warned about in Matthew 10, 28. You don't like hell? Your issue is with Jesus of Nazareth because he taught the doctrine. Jesus warns about hell. In fact, notice Hades will be thrown into hell. This judgment that we're reading about in Revelation 20, 14 through 15 is only for unbelievers. The, the, all believers will be in glory. All unbelievers will be here. It says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Let me stop there. Notice the phrase death and Hades. Some scholars think that this is what's called a hendiatus. A hendiatus means one saying through two words meaning that they're one and the same. They're synonymous. They are not here. By the way, death and Hades are personified elsewhere in Revelation. But here, death is accentuating more than likely the state, you're dead physically, no longer in your body. Hades is accentuating the location. Death is the state. Hades is the location. Where are they thrown? The lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, stop there. How could we say that a different way as we learn today in Matthew? For anyone who didn't enter into the narrow way, anyone who didn't come to faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, he was thrown where? Into the lake of fire. So for the believer at death, you go to be to the new Jerusalem. You go to be to glory, and you're heading for a resurrection in which you're going to have the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem to be your stomping grounds forever to be in glory with the Lord and the saints, never to have to worry about death, never to have to worry about the flu, a broken leg, bad knee, never have to worry about taxation, as it were, 
Never have to worry about it again. But for the unbeliever, they're going to the lake of fire and it will be forevermore. Never once ever again will they ever experience one moment of mercy from the Holy One of Israel. And he will forever be only their enemy. And that is the greatest threat every human being faces outside of Jesus Christ. How soon, if you're an unbeliever and you're watching this today, or perhaps there's an unbeliever here, I don't know, how soon could you be facing this threat? I learned a little something I've been thinking about in the weeks, and I wanted to relay this to you. When I fell, I slipped on ice, and it brought to my mind the passage that was used by Jonathan Edwards in the most famous sermon ever preached on American soil, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And do you know what the central text was for Jonathan Edwards' sermon? It was Deuteronomy 32, 35, where the Lord says, Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. And I thought about the last eight weeks, how quickly my life changed when my foot slipped. I went from preaching to you and seeing you every week and flying airplanes and sledding with my son and lifting me, and all of a sudden I'm in my house, and that's it. In the matter of a second, because my foot slipped. You see, dear ones, those who may be listening to me over the Internet, you don't know when you're going to breathe your last. You don't know when the man or the woman rolls through the stop sign and hits your car. You're not guaranteed that the phone call and the biopsy isn't bad news. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. Life indeed is characterized by having one foot in eternity and the other on a banana peel. That's why Jesus said, today. You enter today the narrow gate which will fix your destiny forevermore with the imputed righteousness of Christ heading to glory. Today is the day to repent and trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and forevermore be on the road to glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for these truths. We thank you, Lord, that you are binary, that it's either or and that it's clear that there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved other than Jesus. We thank you for that. We thank you for the atonement, the imputed righteousness, the forgiveness of sins, and that all we added to this was our sin and rebellion, but you did it all, that you gave it all. We thank you for this truth, and I pray, Heavenly Father, for anyone who may be listening today over the Internet, if they don't know you, today would be their day, that you'd regenerate them and allow them by faith in Christ to enter the narrow gate. We pray for boldness and opportunity for our loved ones who don't know you, whether they be our coworkers, our family, our friends, that you'd give us ample opportunity to preach your glorious gospel so that they too may get off the wide gate and enter the narrow one. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.